Hello, how's everybody doing today? Hope you're doing well. I got a good podcast for you coming up. This is with my man Cliff Capona. Cliff is a really good surfer from Hawaii. He is scheduled to get his chemistry PhD from the University of San Diego shortly, and he has been an outspoken figurehead in the anti-GMO movement in Hawaii. He is one of those people who can speak from a place of knowledge. Gotta love those people who know what they're talking about. Hmm, surprisingly rare. (laughs) Uh, As you listen to this podcast, I am in the desert getting dusty out at Burning Man. I'm camping with Bounce Camp at 8.30 in G, if anyone listens to this podcast, and happens to be at Burning Man right now and wants to come say hello to me. 8.30 in G. Really excited. Getting all packed up, getting the costumes in order. It's just so fun. It's just so fun. Anyone who hasn't gone, don't hate on it because you don't understand how fun it is. And everyone who has gone, you know what I'm talking about. If anyone wants to get in touch with me, you can go over to my website, kyle.surf. Not kyle.surf.com, just kyle.surf. I will also link to Cliff's work in the show notes underneath the page that I've created for him. I bring you Cliff Capono. Kyle Thierman here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. From what I've gleaned about you, you've very much seemed like a self-starter and someone who enjoys learning. And if there's something out there that you would like to learn, you hop in the internet and you go after it. Yeah, I think, I mean, for me, it's, it's really like, I feel that there's so much information out there available to me, especially. And I know I'm privileged in that I, I attend a university. I've attended you know, college and universities. And in my high school, we, we had computers, you know, before I was at Kamehameha schools on Oahu, um, I didn't have access to computers, you know, we have to go to the library, you know, but then that isn't always accessible to some people. My dad, he writes and he, he's very, a, a big fan of libraries. So we were always in the library. So even if something is having a parent that is really enjoys reading and literature, I think that's a privilege that I had. What does right your now. dad do? My dad is right now. He's trying to work on um, the diabetes condition in Hawaii. So a lot of the uh, Hawaiian people, Native Hawaiian communities, are susceptible to metabolic diseases like diabetes, hypertension, high blood pressure, things like that. So my dad is trying to, you know, find accessible and um, non-expensive ways to try to help mitigate some of the detrimental effects of current diet or behavior within our own Hawaiian populations. Right. Like what? So, um, I think it's just a lot goes around exercise, you know, diet and exercise, you know, so the latest thing he's, he's really looking to explore things like okra water and things like that, you know, trying to see how, um, different food groups that are already existing in Hawaii that we can get from 
you know, the flea market. It doesn't have to be the expensive open market every Sunday, but just the, the vegetable aisle at your local grocery store. How can we implement more things like that? How do we get down into the ocean to paddle, you know, and how do we get canoe clubs established where you don't have to pay the big fees? You know, we just have enough money to maintain the canoe, you know, to give access to um, the kids or, or a lot of the elderly, you know. Yeah, and historically, Hawaii was one of the healthiest cultures in the world. Yeah, I, yeah, it, you know, and that's something too that I think it's, it's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting conversation to have because even when I was young, you know, we're taught the Hawaiian people were so healthy, the Hawaiian people were this, the Hawaiian people were that, and, but what happened today? You know, we we do represent the native people, a, a large statistic of the most at risk, incarcerated, uneducated prone to diseases, you know, some negative statistics to be associated, to be on the top of that list, I would say it's, it's, um, kind of frightening, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, we, we, we are just a smaller population. So if you have a fewer whole population, than if say 20 of them have these conditions and you're already boosting the percentage. So the statistics are somewhat, I would say biased in a way, but but it still is an epidemic. It is. It, it is. And I think it, that's across the United uh, America. Yeah. The United States of America's, you know, diabetes and, you know, obesity and all these types of metabolic conditions, you know, around, you know, diet and yep. exercise. Those are, it's a pretty, it's a pretty scary thing. And, and that's something that I think it, it's really behavior can help you know, help with those conditions. Do you remember in PE class when they would have the food pyramid Yeah. and it was funded by the dairy foundations yeah. and they would have milk at the very top? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> gotta be careful. Yeah. Now, now I'm like grown up and I'm listening to, you know, like top nutritionists on podcasts talk about this. I'm like, I was lied to. Yeah. I mean, then that's just so funny because you think about it, it's like that you need to have milk to have a healthy diet. Okay then let's just rewind only 250 years into a lot of places across Polynesia or in the Pacific, these islands, how many cows were there? So these people weren't healthy people, you know, and it's, of course, there's going to be some type of economic incentive for people to be like, oh yeah, drink the milk to get strong bones when, you know, there's a lot of other, you know, nutritious food that can help too. Yeah. um, And I think that at, at the root of it, um, it is about questioning these systems. Like, I think that a, a, there tends to be that waking up moment for a lot of people when you're, you start questioning the information that's coming in. You know, the, the sayings of, you know, that's just the way it always has been. And, oh, there are smart people at the top who know better than you, so you better sit down and shut up and not raise your hand anymore has caused a lot of um, destruction in our world today. And I think that it's, it's largely people like yourself, um, filmmakers. We were just talking about Cyrus Sutton before we went on who are questioning these systems and, um, at least just opening up a point of entry for people to learn more themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I I think building on that is to even question, you know, me, and question Cyrus and even maybe question this podcast. You know, I think that's question everything. <laughs> question everything to an extent, you know, to be like, is this the best thing for not just me, but for my community? Yeah. And if we, if I, I really believe, and this could just, this is my own perspective, which, you know, this could be totally wrong. Question that if, if it's appropriate, but I think that, you know, community based perspective is just 
so beneficial to all communities. What do you mean by that? You know, when you... You like know, give me an example. An example would be like in the house that I live in right now. So I'm, I'm currently in a house with no one from Hawaii. But when I, I'm in there, I say, okay, if I see anything in the fridge, juice or onions or whatever, I'm going to take it even if I bought it or not. There's no labels. There's no nothing. But when I, I'm going to replace it. And then when I go back to replace it, I'll think of something else that the house likes, maybe eggs or something like that. And I don't eat a lot of eggs. But every time I go to the grocery store, I think, ah, I know, you know, one of my roommates really likes eggs. Let me just get that, you know, and, and it does cost me some money, but it's putting back into that community. It's only a small community of four people. But I think in that it, you take care of your basic necessities and you also take care of someone else. And it's just the way it works where one day, you know, I might not have enough money to for food, you know, for the week or something might happen where I know there there's going to be at least some eggs or maybe some fruit or some vegetables or some bread yeah. or fish. Or, if you don't replace it in a small household. Oh, you kicked out. Oh, there, <laughs> at least if nothing else, there's some passive aggressive post-it notes oh, that get posted. We just kick out off the island. <laughs> Kyle, what the fuck? <laughs> Why did you take my ego waffles? Yeah, Kyle wakes up on a raft. <laughs> I got stoned. I'm sorry. I had no control. Oh, all Kyle's weed is gone and yeah. he's in the middle of... Catalina Island. How he didn't know how he got there. Right. <laughs> so what's so you grew up on the Big Island or on yeah. uh, Hilo side? Oh, so on Hilo side, and yeah. then you went to high school on Oahu. Yeah. So there's a um, there's a school. It's a private school for Native Hawaiian people, um, founded in the late 1800s by one of our princesses, um, in a time where the kingdom was um, under you know threat for takeover and overthrow. So one of our princesses, she. Um, got all her resources, whether it was land or trust, and she put it into the education of Hawaiian children. And uh, now there's a, there's three schools, you know, there's uh, high schools, and there's a bunch of different preschools and elementary schools across the islands. But at the time, every, uh, maybe not everyone, but I feel like a high percentage of Native Hawaiians in Hawaii apply to it. You know, okay. ev- everybody's parents are like, just test your kid. Right. If they get in, there's all these resources available from the royal monarch, pretty much. You know what? I was talking to Brandon and Justin Lee about this, where um, people will come into to uh, Native Hawaiian schools very early on, right? When they're like five, six years old, and they'll test them mm-hmm. and see how they play well in social groups, and that can determine the future of their education because there's not enough spots in these schools for everyone to go. Yeah, it's... Um, th- you have these tests and it, it, there isn't a, a not enough spots available. You know, there's only from, I think the year that I got in, it was only three males that could get in for intermediate or something. And then in high school, it was like two from Hilo. So it, it's based upon populations. It's based upon demographic and gender and all these things. So you only have so much spots. So if you get in, you're kind of obligated to go. You yeah. know, I didn't want to leave the big island. I didn't want to have to move to Oahu and have to kind of give up all my friends and give up, you know, everything that I was comfortable with. Like I, that's home and then having to move. And it wasn't like you move to Oahu and you, you live on Oahu. It's you live on the top of this mountain and you can't leave. It's a gated kind of like it's kind of like real world harry potters like you have this huge gate and you can't leave and you have to check in six times a day and it it, it's was actually a it's a boarding school based off a military so is it was it was kind of insane and all native hawaiians all native hawaiians but what what percentage of native hawaiian one drop one drop one drop if you can prove your ancestry dating back prior to you know 1776 then you you can say that you are Hawaiian, you know, Polynesian to an extent, and then you can attend 
the okay. university, or not the university, and, it, the and it's and it's high quality education. Yeah, I would say it's arguably one of the best college prep institutions in the United States. You know, across wow. America, it has more resources than you know a bunch of big universities here. Were there any formative experiences at that school that drew you to do what you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely... Like, do you have any teachers or any experiences? Um, definitely. I, I had a few teachers within at Kamehameha schools um, that helped me to really understand and appreciate um, different technologies and things like that. Um, and it's an amazing, amazing institution. You know, like, great. like what, like what kind of technologies? Um, so we had a, a DNA sequencer. So I think at the time those were roughly about a million dollars. We had a secondhand one from the University of Hawaii, but we were able to sequence things. Um, when I was 16, we were, I was really into doing aquaculture research. So we had a research program where I gave up my summer to go around the shrimp ponds and kind of see what's going on up in Kohuku and things like that. And one kind of concern by the farmers was that there's this idea of bioterrorism, that someone could start throwing these viruses in their shrimp ponds and then it collapses the economy and all these kind of things. So I was like, okay, what kind of, what kind of diseases? And um, we came up with this plan to let's start just testing for these diseases, like a monitoring system, really basic and easy. But we had the technology to create this test at the school and this is like a 16 year old kid you know that doesn't really know the implications of having a you know safety code tester for bioterrorism but when i presented it to the people at the science fair they were like pretty stoked and they're like oh why don't you come up to like the intel international science it was like kind of nerdy or whatever but it was like in arizona and they fly you up and it's like sally ride the astronaut came and spoke with us and like they're offering big scholarships to like harvard and mit and all these things whoa like everyone like i look at some of the guys there they're all working on these like huge i don't know crazy projects or in space and things and well i think that hawaii is uh, a very unique place because it is a microcosm for the rest of the world you have so many different ecosystems there and a test that you could be be doing as a 16 year old kid could have international implications yeah yeah it, it was a huge huge privilege like incredible privilege i'm so fortunate to attend there B- bring me into um a situation like that like what is a shrimp pond and how would that process work so what we did was we we we've seen okay there's this one disease called white spot syndrome virus and this this shrimp so you have a shrimp pond and you have um what does it look like it's like a i mean maybe a up to an eighth of an acre a quarter acre to even one acre of just water a pond and they're right off the side of the road as you're going up to the North Shore, right before you get to Turtle Bay, if you're going towards the North Shore from the east side, and you have the shrimp trucks and things, everything. Right behind them is you see these big ponds, and you see kind of these um, these mounds that you can walk through. And they feed, you know, they just spray the food inside of there. And then there's kind of birds flying around trying to pick off the shrimp that they can. But basically, just be like cattle, essentially, there's a huge stocking density in there, which causes a lot of potential for disease and viruses. So inevitably when you have a high population viruses will intrude into that system and then the, the shrimps will get sick so we wanted to see if we can do a rapid test to see if we can test for that and viruses they encode dna and this is what we're looking for we're looking for viral dna within the shrimp ponds within the tissue and with, within the actual water space so all we did is we just bought shrimp from those ponds and we crushed them up and we grabbed water and we seen if we could test 
for the virus. And in a couple ponds, we found it. We fu- we detected it. And How do you do that? So you put it. So you put the shrimp underneath the DNA sequencer. Yeah. So we just mash it up. We take a shrimp tail, we mash it up, and then we do a series of extractions. So, um, you know, within within the DNA is within these the cells, the nucleus of the cell. You know, like Nacho Libre, he talks about the nucleus. No. I never saw that movie. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, but there's a there's a nucleus within each cell of your body, and um, in in shrimp they have them too. So you have to grind up the cells, and then you have to get to the nucleus of the cell and the DNA that's you know coded because that codes pretty much everything. So they have to protect your cells, protect that piece of information very very delicately. So you have to do a series of chemical extractions to remove that piece of DNA outside of the cell. Once you get it, then you introduce it into this machine or instrument, which will essentially read what the code says. And then we do different computer programs or we do it different techniques to try to see what does that code say. And that's using these expensive, expensive instruments. And are you, are you looking for, for variations that are abnormal in the the sequence of the DNA. Like I'm picturing the double helix. Sure. Yeah. So and I'm picturing, sure. I, I don't know, maybe yeah. like some sort of abnormal, uh, variation in a, in a nucleus that would have a disease. Is that, am I at yeah, all no, on that, base there? That, no, that's correct. Um, so like I'm not a virologist and it's been a while since I actually been doing a lot of this type of uh, research, but, um, basically what a virus will do, it's, it's like, it's kind of, it's this free flowing entity that will land kind of like a Mars or a moon spaceship. It'll land onto the cell and it has like a prong needle that injects DNA directly into the cell. So once that DNA gets into the cell, sometimes it will be integrated into your own DNA. So this is what happens in, and there's different forms of it and different mechanisms, but essentially this is what HIV is. You know, this is what different types of diseases where you're taking a foreign piece of disease that encodes DNA and it's getting put into your body in, and integrated into your genetic code. Um, so when we, we take a healthy shrimp, and we look at what the DNA looks like, and then we just compare it to known disease shrimps. And then if we see that there's similarities between the two, we check it off as being you know, infected. Right. And did you go to college uh, directly out of high school? Yeah. So after Kamehameha, I went to University of Hawaii at Manoa in a biotechnology degree. So at the time, um, aquaculture was under the biotechnology um, college and that's why I went there I wanted to further explore these types of things because aquaculture is a very Hawaiian thing you know Ahupua'a system it's, it's the end of the Ahupua'a system and there's also you know, in Polynesia too you know on Tahiti and across Polynesia there's so many f- uh, fish farming structures that yeah. I wanted to see what's the next the next phase of it as Br- like a modern day Hawaiian break down the Ahupua'a system so yeah, you know that's something that oh, I mean, it sounds like kind of a buzzword now. Like I, I, I don't. I, it I, seems like I mean I. It's, for, I don't. It's like gluten. It's like everyone uses it, but no one really knows what it means. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and again, this is coming from one Hawaiian's perspective, mm-hmm. how I was taught. But the ahupua'a, when we talk about it, we, it's it's about land division, you know. And I and I don't want to come off as an expert in it, but just from what I was taught, it's definitely it starts from your water source to the tip of the reef and that's your ahu pua'a you know the ahu is like a marker and the pua'a is a pig so what they would do to mark the land boundaries is they would put a pig skull you know to kind of show on an altar to show this is the land division so of course it included all your water source you know included all your resources that you needed but it wasn't 
I feel sometimes it gets kind of a misnomer in that it's like there's a mountain and a waterfall and then all these lo'i with taro and then it goes into the sweet potato and then there's the canoe house and there's this nice lagoon where, you know, it, it was allocated based on the amount of water. So if you had a nice stream, you would have a skinny little parcel. But if you didn't have a waterfall or a pond, you just had percolating water from the bottom, then you had a larger space, you know, so they weren't equally distributed throughout the island. It was based upon resources, but it was land division. Okay. You know, and, and that's the thing where more so about resources, I think an important part of Ahupua is about differences that Hawaiians from one part of the island didn't just walk to another part of the island. And I think that's something that maybe can be misconstrued by people who visit Hawaii thinking, Oh, sometimes Hawaiian people can be really localized and like you guys there are haoles versus us. And, you know, it comes from a kind of a deeper perspective is where we looked at other Hawaiians and said, you don't belong here. You know, there's Hawaiians from Hilo that's or people from Kau, people from Kona side, you know, Justin guys, you know, like they're going to say, you're coming over here taking our fish. What are you giving back to this place? You know, there, there, there's still that exists, you know, where it's about resources, island to island. You can't just get on a boat to Molokai and expect to just go and take fish. Like nah. that's not going to happen, yeah. you know? And I think that's important to know that the Ahupua is about resources, but it's also about um, land, land division, yeah. establishing that, that land division. And not that pe- we own this, but it's that we are the stewards. And I think that's something that, kind of gets lost too is that it's not about owning land our land your land all this kind of recent things in the Hawaiian right uh, you know renaissance it's more about we are the stewards and if you want to claim ownership then you have to claim the stewardship and I think that gets around with what happened on Kauai with um, Zuckerberg and Facebook where he bought huge parcels of land and began boarding it up with different walls and things and the people on Kauai are I don't, I don't speak for them it's just I know if he came to Big Island I would be saying you can buy all this land if you want but you're going to buy all the responsibility around maintaining. Right. There should be a direct correlation between responsibility and authority. Exactly. And I think that there is a duality between uh, what you're speaking to regarding um, ownership and interconnectedness. Because the Ahuwa system was interconnectedness, but there, were, there still was um, individual ownership between, um, different sections of it. Yeah. And, and the ownership, that's kind of like, it seems like a hard, a hard word. I think it's, it's more the, the people from that, that area had a set resource pool that they could trade with other Ahupua. So it, it became a sense like you, you did have a sense of, um, responsibility that you're willing to protect because you know other people relied on it right and you weren't willing to jeopardize that with people who were going to mismanage it and i think that's a a central value of the ahupua system around knowing how much you have and being a steward of that system and of course yeah it technically it should have all the resources needed but some didn't you know that's just the the geology of the land right some places down in the desert you know hawaii both something like 11 of the 13 natural yeah big islands it's like crazy crazy different lands and you're not gonna get like free running waterfalls and like sandy beaches in the desert part of the the island oh my god yeah you drive for an hour on the big island and i'm like okay i was just in the desert and now i'm in a rainforest and now it's pouring rain and now I'm freezing and I need a jacket. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's, <laughs> it's only been an hour. Yeah, you can get all the all the different feelings you want. Beautiful spot, man. Yeah. So you went from high school out to uh, 
Remind me again. University of Hawaii. And that's, where, and that's where you studied biotech. That's where I studied biotech. Yeah. I did a four year undergraduate program there. What drew you to that? Um, was that? What, what drew you to study biotech? Um, well, like, like I said, that was the uh, aquaculture was under the biotech. Okay. And at the time, um, a lot of my teachers at Kamehameha schools were telling me that this is an industry that's going to kind of descend on Hawaii. And we don't have enough native people kind of understanding what's going to go on. You know, we, we highly encourage you to take a, at least a peek at it. And I was like, ah, I don't know. I just, I don't know if I want to do that. But they're like, oh, aquaculture is a part of it. And I'm like, farming fish? I love fish. I'm all in. And then right. I went into that. But after a few, I kind of did fish farming there for a couple of years. And I, I just felt that there was, I was exposed to so many different types of classes. You know, then they started saying like, okay we are made up of DNA and cells and all these types of things, which I was kind of familiar with, but like, did you know that you can like a virus, you can introduce DNA or remove DNA. And I'm like, Whoa, I can be like a virus. Like to me, that just was like kind of like crazy. Like I, I was like, and I don't know if that's right or wrong. That to concept. That. Yeah. But when you're, you're, when you're a young kid, you're like, wow, I can actually like how I create a car. Cause I don't want to have to walk super far. I can create a biological vector to maybe protect a crop. Like that just blew my mind. I was like, why not? Why work harder, work smarter? I can learn this, you know? And, and that's when I was introduced. It was in the college of tropical ag and human resources. So agriculture was a big, a big supporter of this department. So they're saying, oh yeah, you know, look at, you know, these, these plants or these crops that are under crazy pressures of pests and of viruses and people are starving. We have the power to use nature to fix that. And I'm just like, whoa, that's right aligns with my values. Use nature to fix problems. And like, that's what it was. Biotechnology, you know, using biology to, to advance the human condition. And I was so stoked on it. And, and then I started to take ethical classes on it. And it just started getting like really cloudy, you know, really gray. Was that when you were taking those classes, was that right around the time that the GMO anti-GMO movement in Hawaii was picking up steam? I would say that would be in its infancies. In its infancies. This was really around the time when they were doing genetic modification on taro, which I don't know if you're familiar with. uh, We believe that the taro or the kalo is a sibling to our people. Um, There's a story of on our creation that the... um, the creators created first. The first birth was of this taro, or it was a stillborn. And the stillborn was then planted into the earth and a taro came out. And the second born was a man, the first man. So we believe that the, we're the brother of the firstborn. So we treat the taro as like a, a family member, you know, an ancestor. Um, I've even heard um, perspective about that's where Haole comes from. A haole is not a white devil or anything like that, but the ha is the stem of that tarot, and ole is to be without. So you are not from that stem. It's just acknowledging that you don't come from haloa naka, you know, you don't come from or haloa, you know, you don't come from the first born. Isn't there another translation that is uh, goes back to something along the lines of without breath? Like yeah, ha, ha, is, ha is ha is the breath, you know, okay. and ole is without, and and. You know, there's, like I said, different perspectives, different translations. Sure. But to, to hear that about to not be from that stem, you know, there, there's nothing about white is not, is nowhere in there, you know. <laughs> um, I'll be sure to tell them that next time I get called out a holly on the big well, island. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> well, excuse me, sir. Can I give you a quick little history lesson? <laughs> 
that wouldn't work out. Just say you heard that in LA. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so oh yeah, so they're doing genetic. So, so they're doing GMO modification on taro. On taro, yeah. Okay. So that's kind of what was happening at the university. So they're saying, okay, there's this huge beetle or something that's going and taking out huge taro crops in Samoa, and because it's such a central crop in Hawaiian culture, uh, maybe not so much to our diet as much now because it's so expensive to process and, and cultivate. But there's still a lot of taro farmers in Hawaii. Um, but it, it, it's more of a, um, a cultural thing. It's very important to have a, a gatherings and parties to have um, kalo or taro and poi, you know, the processed or the, the mashed taro. So that's something that is just like Hawaiians usually have to have at baby parties or something. Um, but that's. So, so so the GMO aspect of that was contentious within the Hawaiian culture yeah. of them modifying yeah. this highly revered crop. Yeah, it was it was more about the ethics behind it. It had, it had nothing to do with pesticides or anything like that. And and to be honest, I, I can't even remember now because I was a, a while ago of, of the really reason what they were doing. I think be, I remember them saying it was about a beetle. You know, the, okay. this, the, so they were trying to create. Uh, similar to like a, maybe a BT strain where it would produce a protein that caused the beetle to feel full and it would die. So it was a modification into the actual physiology of the plant that caused the pest to die when it ate it. There's right. no, nothing about pesticides or anything like that. And still like the Hawaiian people were like, you cannot test on this, you know, this crop because it means too much. That's like disrespectful to the culture, things like that. And then there's arguments and, at the university, whether it was like not even a Hawaiian variety and it just got sure. really crazy. So, so for people who aren't familiar at all with the GMO issue in Hawaii, can you um, zoom out and just give me that um, that pulled back view of what's sure. happening? Sure. So, um, and again, biotechnology, it's um, a heavy component to biotechnology is genetic modification of organisms. One organism primarily is agriculture crops corn or tomatoes or anything um, and this is to circumvent the need for more pesticides or to re- reduce you know pests and viruses and pressures you know this is like I said this is why I got into it I was really excited by these things um, what has happened is certain companies have come to Hawaii and they use Hawaii as an experiment so they're not really doing a lot of research to see what genes or what traits is they're just blasting crops with pesticides they're blasting crops with chemicals whether it's corn or whatever they're testing and they want to see which plants survive you know that that's the real thing is because our body will mutate you know like the dna in our in our body will be able to you know if there's a thousand of us in a room and you spray us with a gas or something there, there is a potential that there may be one person that could survive or a million people you know you spray with like you know some type of chemical someone might survive because they have a weird like maybe block in their nose or they can't breathe effectively and that trait it's it's just an off chance mutation where maybe they're not the fastest person in the sprints but because they have trouble breathing they didn't inhale as much you know gas right that now has allowed them to survive so as everyone dies that trait that mutation is very important which that could help if these gas things kept blasting right so that's essentially the analogy to the corn is you grow a bunch of corn, you know, millions and millions of corn plants, you spray it with this chemical, maybe one or two might survive because they got mutated in a weird way. And when everything dies, the last standing, you then look at the genetic code and you take that genetic code and you make clones. And now you can always spray that chemical on them 
and it'll kill everything around them except for that plant. Right, which is highly profitable if you then outsource that to uh, Iowa. Exactly. That is a huge corn state. Then you can use that uh, pesticide along with that seed exactly. to um, to sell and take and, over. And it's easy. Okay. And, and it all comes around the idea is less work. You okay. Know, where it's like the pests are coming down and eating. You just spray this. Well, the corn's going to survive. It's going to kill everything around it. Is it accurate to say that the vast majority of genetically engineered crops um, are engineered to withstand pesticides? That's the reason. Is that the reason for their genetic engineering, or is that an oversimplification of it? I think there's um, there's a lot of there's a lot of different applications of biotech and genetic modification that's just one but why i bring up that one is that's what's happening in hawaii is people are not stoked on all the pesticide that that test of spraying and trying to find that one survivor or those two survivors that mechanism that process it's it's not managed well and there's a lot of pesticides being leaked out into the public you know it's it's in wind lines it's going out to the reefs it, it's it's pretty it, unfortunate to see that the companies are, are willing to be so sloppy especially right. if they're doing it in the name of science you know science is when we do things in the lab we're double triple quadruple checking everything that goes wrong and it just seems that when you get onto the real world and that, that was one of my big problems with it is in the lab I'm, I'm doing all these tests to ensure safety and then when you get onto the real world, it's like, oh, it don't matter. I, oh, I don't know if I can be down with that. And this was in college that you were yes. exposed to all this information. Mm -hmm. Was there a moment when you were in college when that uh, light bulb went off in your head? Do you remember a certain situation? I think just academics in general for me, it's I wasn't necessarily like even in this, the high school I went to, I didn't want to say I had the best grades. I definitely was like C's get degrees kind of guy, try for the A and you know, it's like, C's get degrees. <laughs> I like it that. Was, it was pretty. That's my motto, man. I, I mean, like that. yeah, that's, a, that's my motto too. Still, it's like, you know, just get through. <laughs> but I mean, it. I wouldn't say that I was a, a stellar student, which kind of like brought a lot of, um, kind of pushback okay. from my um, teachers. So it, maybe it wasn't so much that this idea, because I could have said like, oh, I don't want to do biotech. I don't want to do college. I'm going to go do film or something like that. And I, I could have done that. I had the opportunity to just do that if I want to. But it's something I, I wanted to learn more. And I, I really wanted to understand these issues of, in our community. But I was getting so much kind of push back with like, this is the way it is. You know, we were talking about earlier. It's like people just tell you this is the way it's going to go and you can't do anything about it. And I just got kind of burnt down on it and I was ready to just drop out of college. Honestly, I remember having a conversation with my dad. It was my senior year. And I said, you know, I missed some weird course because of the timing. They didn't offer a class or something. They're making me come back and pay another year of tuition or a semester. And I was like, I don't want to do that. Like I'm over it. I don't need a degree. I know who I am. We're going to be fine. You know, like we know how to take care of ourselves, take care of the land. We're going to, we have family. We have everything we need. Like, why do I need this degree? And I kind of maybe I'm feeling sorry for myself a little bit. And, you know, I had a good talk with my dad and he just is like, I mean, it's up to you, but you know, if you really want to understand what's going on, you got to go further. And, you know, it kind of was like, okay, I'll just go a little bit, a little bit more. And actually it was, really cool that that next semester I came back I took a biochemistry course and I kind of in that biochemistry course I started seeing about from nature we can create medicines for people for human health and that was the first time I was exposed to that because I was so concentrated on agriculture and manipulating it was the first time I seen that actually everything you need 
to survive is already exists on a chemical level in, in nature. And that just, again, well, blew my mind and I wanted to get more about it. And I talked to my professor and I said, hey, I'm graduating this semester, but could I, could I learn more from you? And he's like, oh, why don't you just come into a, a graduate program, a master's program in biochem? And I was like, okay. So I ended up working in his lab for a couple of years. And that's when I started uh, using toxins. We were trying to find uh, toxins from spiders, bees, and cone snails as uh, potential therapeutics. So, whoa. Yeah. So, like, we were. Are there any? Yeah. Well, there's one from a cone snail, these like venomous snails that eat fish. They're like, they're like crazy. They're like, you, you know, those like space movies where the giant slug like shoots out barbs and eats people. Yeah. That's, it's real. And like, that's where these. These guys, um, they shoot out these molecules that, you know, when when you get a toxin or a venom, it's a cocktail of different molecules. You got 50 to 200 of them. And one is making your blood or your heart pump faster to pump the poison through. One is trying to make you kind of get a little loopy so you can't really get to help. And some things make you go blind. And there's all these different molecules that we can separate out. So you could, in theory, the thing that speeds up your heart, you can pull that out and isolate it from all that other stuff. So if your heart starts to go into some type of arrest, you know, potentially you can just inject with some type of heart blasting molecule and you come back to life kind of thing. So this is like what I was like, you know, it blew my mind. So doctor, give me the snail. Yeah. It's going into cardiac arrest. (laughs) I mean, that's, that's, it was on that level. And I was like, okay, this is cool from nature medicine. And I, I did all of this and I, I was such biology based that I relied on the chemist a lot. My, my chemistry wasn't that strong up until that point. So I, I kind of, um, I started to look around and then there was an opportunity. There's a, a recruitment out of university of California, San Diego. And I was going to just do my PhD back in Hawaii, but, um, there was an opportunity at the university of California, San Diego. And I told them what I knew how to do. And my, and they were like, Oh, we'd love to have you in the program as a amazing opportunity and offer to come up. And, Again, it was another thing like, oh, it's like all over, like coming home out of schools again. Like, do I got to leave home to go away? And I kind of wrestled with it for a bit. And then I, I decided to come up. And that's when I came up in 2012. Right. And from deciding to stay in school and now getting a degree in molecular biology, it's allowing you to sit at certain tables that other people cannot sit at. And it, it seems that by happenstance you've now become somewhat of a figurehead within the GMO movement because you do have specialized information uh from the education that you've you've received yeah I, I kind of feel like kind of weird about that too because it's kind of unfortunate where like the people that should be sitting at the table are, are the people that are experiencing it you know the people that are living it and and for me honestly the my, my biotech kind of um conflict was was one that I left I left that conflict there's an internal conflict and I decided no I don't I don't support that here in Hawaii so I'm going to move on to the next thing that's stoking me out and that's medicine from nature and I left it where is someone who's still living next to that farm getting sprayed like they deserve to be talking about it you know like I, I, honestly I don't farm food you know like and I would say, you know, from my family, we're ocean people. If we wanted food, we'd trade fish, you know, like we, we, we yeah, it's, it's, I feel weird about it too, because I'm put into a conversation where I understand that the science and the technology from a contemporary uh, perspective. And, and I do understand I was taught, you know, I, I farmed and I was taught that ways, those ways. Uh, but 
I think that there, there should be someone that's in that room at that table saying, we need to focus our attention towards the people who are living it, the people who are experiencing it on a day to day, because we can talk all we want on this table. It's not going to change when someone gets sick. It's not going to change when the reef is dying. It's not going to change when, you know, all the sediment is going on to the ocean. So what is the, what have been the proven health and environmental impacts of genetic, of pesticides from genetic uh, crops? Yeah, so I mean, th- this is a highly, highly contentious topic, right. even within the scientific field, because money's involved. You know, there are scientists. There's been shown that scientists have taken money to fund universities or fund um, programs and research fields, and from big private companies. So there's always a conflict of interest. Um, I would say that you know the evidence, the evidence supports that any type of pesticide will have detrimental effect on the human condition at a certain dosage. So it's all about finding those dosages. And this is where the loophole is, is exposure and dose and how you test for those exposures and doses. So these are all the things that, you know, science, we can say statistics according to this paper, according to that paper, according to my friend, according to my family, according to me. But at the end of the day, it's difficult to really put your validated stamp like this is going to hurt you. This is going to kill you according to science right well because a, a lot of it as you said is exposure and it's chronic exposure to these pesticides so if you're driving through the west side of one of these islands for one day and you ooh, sniff a little pesticide that probably won't hurt you but if you're living there for 10 years it could impact you on a long-term basis and those studies are more difficult to um to be verified than if you're doing a short-term six-week study in the effectiveness of or efficacy of antidepressants in with people who are depressed exactly but and and also to make you know these controls you know, to try to control your test right whereas like oh this person is getting you know he, they live next to the the pesticide field but they're also you know working at some industrial park or you're working on somewhere where they have high exposures to other types of chemicals right you know, just our brake pads that we drive they have harmful cancer causing chemicals you know not to cause like you know alarm or anything i'm but gonna like, stop driving <laughs> there, there's like i mean so many things are gonna get us sick right so it's hard to really pinpoint that but what i would say is that i mean anytime you put a chemical that is not found in that place naturally there's a higher probability, a, a huge increase in risk, you know, what, whatever that chemical is like to a certain, to, uh, caffeine can be dangerous, right. you know, and, and that's, it's what's the level of risk we as a community are willing to take. Right. And a lot of people are reporting cancer and sickness in these communities surrounding the fields. Sure. Is that, sure. That's yeah. correct. No. Okay. Of, of course. And it, it, there is a lot of um, pushback. Now the current condition in Hawaii is now currently is people are saying, you know, we're not down with this. You know, we don't like this. We don't feel that, you know, it should be at our health expense. It shouldn't be at the land's health expense. And now through social media and through activism, you know, and through communication, there's a platform now to speak out against that, you know, and I think more people, everyone is willing to say, yeah, we can empathize with that. That makes sense. But how do we incentivize the company to move away from that? That's a, that's a whole nother conversation that we can be having is do we just say, oh, you know, like Monsanto is the worst or do we say, hey, Monsanto, what you're doing is the worst. This is how you can do better. How do we help 
to create this? Because we know you're about the money. You know, we're, we're about the land. Is there a way that we can still get you money and we can improve the land? I think so. We just need to have some creative individuals, you know, kind of step up. What do you think are some of those solutions? I mean, shucks, it, it comes down to what is the intention of the, the study, you know, and that that's really looking hard at the procedures, the protocols, the limitations of the technology, and just, you know, looking at that risk. Whereas, you know, the more you get into a scientific room and conversation um, where money's involved, sometimes you start to realize that a lot of people don't know really what's going on, you know, but they know a little bit more than the person who's not in the room. Right. And that's what's driving that money, money talk. So if you get people to understand it, like at least the science behind it, then you can ask them like, okay, you want to grow these corn, you want to spray all these pesticides. Those are pretty bad. Can we have the appropriate management to enclose them? You know, or how about we just communicate what's being sprayed and is this water soluble or is it you know, oil soluble? So we know like what is our risk as a community around it? You know, we can work together, you know, like. Right. That seems like a big issue is that a lot of the information isn't out there around even what's being sprayed because a company like Monsanto will say that they don't want their competitors getting a hold of their pesticides. So people don't actually know what's being sprayed. Exactly. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. It's, it's like all these, you know, trade trade secrets and all right. these kind of things. And, and, and to be honest, you know, it's it really is kind of a weird conversation to have because I think at first there's a lot of people willing to work with these types of uh, institutions and organizations and entities. And then to a point where they're just not getting taken seriously. So now there is a level of people took it personal. So now it's it's become a personal argument, a personal battle. And of course, if people's lives are depending on it, I, I'm not going to say that's not like right for them. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's not right for them to be upset, to want to fight. You know, like I, I get that. You know, it's how do we find a level of communication? That's the big question, and that's what. I, and honestly, I don't know. I don't really know what the answer is. But this is the steps that I believe are going to only push us towards an answer. In your mind, what is a realistic future for Hawaii and uh, biotech companies? An optimistic future, but yeah. one that is still based in reality. Yeah, I think that um, it's it's going to come down to, you know, bi- biotechnology. It comes down to companies, really, whether it's biotechnology or tourism or whatever it is. It's this constant kind of, I don't know how you call it. It's like a push and shove between right. the values of Hawaii, which often don't necessarily coincide on the same trajectory as companies from not, not in Hawaii, foreign companies, which is okay. It's, I'm not saying that everyone has to be Hawaiian style, you know, as much as I I love Hawaiian style, it's, it's pretty cool. It's just, it's it's (laughs) It's pretty pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) But it's really coming down to that idea of how to reduce our dependency on outside resources. You know, and really the reason why, you know, the Monsantos and the Syngentas and or whatever the, the merging name is now, it, it's about we rely on their, their money. You know, we, we depend on that money because we're not having a, an, an economy that's saying, ah, you know, that's not worth it. The risk is, you know, too much. We, that money's not worth it. But yeah. right now it is. The money is worth it. The right. money's good. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's worth the risk. So it's going to come down to... Um, just our, our own communities, our own governance of, you know, what do you call it? Kingdom, nation, state, 
country, whatever it is, it's going to come down to the reducing that dependence on the outside. What are some of the most inspiring projects that you're seeing coming out of Hawaii as a result of this movement? I mean, one, one thing that I'm really, really impressed by and grateful for is the the idea of people just kind of thinking about food. You know, it's become cool to, to know where your food comes from. It's become cool to know uh, who's who in the neighborhood because we do it on an individual level you know and maybe some islands are more in tune with it and it didn't really you know it, it definitely wasn't away. it definitely wasn't trendy before a few years ago when barca and people like yourself and it like started talking about this in a way that the culture shifted yeah well i think there was a, there's a lot of this um and i think you know in reality i think a lot of it comes it, it's rooted in this um, intergenerational trauma or that transgenerational trauma of what happened in the late 1800s to the kingdom of Hawaii. You know, it was taken over by the United States government and it, it wasn't done in a way that is, is proven fact, you know, and some people will say, oh, well, America took over everyone or there's that always happens. That's it eventually would have happened. And, you know, I don't know if I agree with that, you know, and I could be wrong here, but, you know, we had electricity for the White House, you know, we had trade, international trade. We were recognized by European countries. We had treaties and constitutions. We have a palace. Like, we were kind of on the forefront. Yeah, you know? Hawaii had one of the earliest monetary systems in the world. It, it, First place in the world to ever have farmed fish. Very um, uh, advanced society very early on. I mean, I would argue extremely advanced and also willing to join the world as they move forward. You know, we... We had ice cream. I remember reading a note. I was in the Bishop <laughs> Museum. Screw the monetary system. We had ice cream. <laughs> I mean, I remember going to the Bishop Museum and I was reading a note from the last king, Kalakaua, and he wrote on this little notepad to some someone in the palace, me and so-and-so will have ice cream at 10.30 a.m. And I'm like, people would think, oh, who cares? But I'm like, whoa, 10.30 downtown Honolulu is hot. <laughs> You know what I mean? And where did ice cream come from back then? Alaska. That's where it came from. We didn't have no ice downtown, you know? This is the late 1800s, working ice cream cones. Like, to me, that kind of shows, like, on the very basic level, we're kind of... Wait, how did this work? Like, like, so before we... When did Hawaii get ice cream? So, this was the late 1800s. Okay. So, there's no refrigeration. No refrigeration. You know, they're, they're not transport... Like, they had to transport ice from places where ice was you know so you got to think about this yeah this no is, i'm trying to wrap my head around it i'm no, having a hard time if you think about it this is an island in the middle of the pacific one of the most isolated landmass on the planet that they're getting ice from alaska you know that means you have some type of connection with far corners of the world to not only power your palace but to eat ice cream in the morning like that's pretty baller status that's you know? super baller status like yo we got to keep it good with alaska because yeah. they're bringing us <laughs> that's down where the ice, ice cream, cream. Like, i don't know like <laughs> to me that that just it's like oil a few hundred years ago like yeah. now nah, we got to keep it cool with them because uh <laughs> without ice cream the whole whole society shuts down and that's where diabetes came from. right <laughs> damn it it was all it was all well intentioned yeah. no but um, seriously it, it it really we 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 had, you know, in, in the early or like in the early 1880s, there was a bunch of um, youth that traveled across the world from Hawaii, handpicked by the king, to be able to learn different trades, whether it was military, 
um, San Jose. And that's one of the reasons why they're surfing in Santa Cruz is because yep. the princes, they were, they were one of those first children that went away to learn um, military strategy in San Jose from military academy. So, and there's a bunch of other kids. They went to Germany, France, Japan to learn, you know, trade, medicine, art. It's just... This is in the 1800s, This right? is the 1883. Yeah. You know, this is when they went away. And it, it really is... It's they are the real heroes that I think it gets lost a lot of times because we're so focused on the overthrow, which is unfortunate itself that happened in 1893. Um, these, these guys were going out, these guys and girls were going out and trying to learn the way of the world, how it was advancing, how it was moving forward. And, and I believe, you know, we, we weren't, we weren't just in the Ahupua'a system. Yeah. Some places in Hawaii were, were still have that Ahupua'a system, but there were other places in, I mean, sorry, other places in Hawaii, they're still doing that. But a, a lot of people were adopting, you know, in integrating, I think merging the two. That yeah. was a that was a strong value in that time. And unfortunate circumstances happen where it resulted in the overthrow of the kingdom. And that's that underlying tension of this kind of animosity to outside by a lot of whether they're native Hawaiians or just Hawaiians or from or people from Hawaii. It's it's that kind of perspective, the untalked about kind of but, elephant in the room right but the but the intention of some of those hawaiian princes was to go out into the world and learn skills that could be brought back to hawaii exactly to adopt change yeah you know to uh, integrate change you know change for the better by using the past so the the princes who went from hawaii to santa cruz and they surfed the river mouth yeah. that was the famous first session documented uh, outside doc- of hawaii. documented yeah. outside of hawaii um went to Santa Cruz to learn military strategy. Is that yeah. correct? Or yeah. they went to San Jose? San Jose. Yeah. And then they, um, one of the princes, there was the, uh, Kwananakos, but, uh, Prince Jonah Kuhio, he was actually an amazing wrestler, kind of a scrapper and one of the best surfers, you know, in Hawaii. And he's like, Oh, this wood looks great. Let me just chop down this tree, build my surfboard and shred. And then that's, was like, that's the what rest kind, of history. What kind of wood was it? It was a redwood tree. It was a redwood tree. Yeah, wow. so I don't know how how much of the the redwood tree people would be stoked on that, but I think there maybe were more back. <laughs> I think the, I think it was okay to cut down one <laughs> to make a surfboard. I think the real problem is that we built San Francisco out of all of the Santa Cruz Mountain redwoods. I'm like, oh, there's a bunch of these. We'll just cut them down. Um, but yeah, those things are amazing. Have you been up uh, through Santa Cruz and seen? Yeah, I mean, it's, there's pra- practically no old growth left. I mean, there there's some, but you see some of those trees that are a few thousand years old. It's crazy. So crazy. Scale, man. Yeah. That's the old, that's the ancestors right there. Makes you feel small. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, and, and that's where a lot of that pushback kind of that, the, the, it's, it's rooted in something like that. And the, the, what maybe people don't know is that the overthrow was around sugarcane. You know, it was about agriculture. That was one of the main reasons is that you have a bunch of agriculturalists, businessmen, that seen value in making Hawaii a state or a part of the United States so you wouldn't get taxed because at one point Hawaii was the main importer of sugar during the Civil War. Once the Civil War ended, the United States wanted to put tax back on the import of sugar. So the sugarcane owners were like, no, we don't want to have to pay a tax to import our sugar to the United States. And they said, well, the only way that you wouldn't have to pay taxes if you were part of the United States. And that's when it, the light bulb went off and the businessmen saying, well, let's just make Hawaii part of the United States then. And what then, what were the sequence of events that led from Hawaii being uh, an independent 
entity to being part of the United, becoming part of the United so, States. So it started. It started kind of on our in the last king, the last monarch. It it really started around. Um, the trust was really built with some of the royalty, with some of these foreign, um, you know, foreign nationalists, where they would come in and help write laws and bylaws and things like that. Where, you know, they kind of were seen as like, you know, people from the United States of America were able to communicate to so many different people that maybe the Hawaiian, you know, governance were unable to get access to. So you had a partner. You know, right. it's always like the guy like honorary oh, like him, but he talks to. France for me or he talks to whoever for me so I gotta like be cool with him and they eventually started writing all these bylaws and hiding a lot of things into the law and passing it and one famous constitution amendment was called the bayonet constitution where they held the king at gunpoint to sign it and he, he signed it and, and what what did the bayonet constitution involve what that did is it essentially stripped power away from the monarch and it put it into this cabinet or these group of individuals who were primarily made up of these businessmen from the united states so it, it stripped the power from the king to say no this is how we're doing thing from the first constitution um that was written you know 50 years before so it was an amendment and when that king, Kalakaua, died after he signed the Bayonet Constitution. Um, his sister, the queen, Lili'uokalani, who was our last queen, um, she was planning to say, you know what? That's not going to be how it is anymore. I am restoring power to the throne, and these guys in the cabinet are just going to have to suck it. Um, it was pretty much the night before that she went to press that and sign it that they imprisoned her, and they, they said she's a traitor, She's trying to overthrow the kingdom. It's our job as our cabinet to take care of this traitor. And they locked her up in her own palace. And that was what happened in 1893. In 1893, this group called themselves whatever. They, you know, they were protecting Hawaii, said the queen is trying to take power back away from us. No, she's a traitor. Terrorist. Terrorist. That's what happened. Are there any uh, books or resources that you'd recommend people to check out to learn more about this? Shoot, I, th now I I'm putting it on the spot. I feel if, like so no worries. If, I'll, if if you think of something, I'll put it in cool. the the link cool. below uh, your profile, on my website. Kyle, cool. Yeah, Kyle I have some. I have some books. Yeah. Cool. cool. It seems like you have lived this um, this life where there's this duality between wanting to get to the point where you can do a lot of good in the world and get to the point where you can sit at these tables where you can have a big impact and th that being at conflict with wanting to just enjoy the world. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It seems like that's a, a theme of, of Cliff Capono. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is. It's like, I mean, it's, cause, cause dude, I mean, I'll, I'll stroke your ego for a sec. You're a great surfer. Uh, like you, uh, you like one you, of many. <laughs> no, but you're like actually good. You like, I've seen you at Mavs. I've seen you out at pipe. I've seen you. I mean, you, you know how to surf very well. Um, and it could be, and I mean, you surf for Visla. It could be something that you just chose to focus on solely and you could have made a, a nice little surf career for yourself. I, I mean, thank you. That's really nice of you to say, but like, I mean, uh, there's so many amazing, talented watermen in Hawaii. You know, I come from uh, an amazing community where I would say I'm not anything special coming from the big Island. You know, Hawaii's got talk about underground and all that kind of stuff. And everywhere, uh, when I was out, up there in Santa Cruz and out there in half moon, like, guys that I've never heard before are going deeper and bigger than anyone. It's, just, it's like the underground world is once I learned about that, I'm just like, I'm, pff, why do I should expect to have anything? You yeah. know? And it, 
growing up too, it almost was like there, maybe there was a little bit something inside of me that said, can I, can I make a living off of this? I, I would love to, it seems like a great thing. But like I said, like, you know, that being in the school and like, you know, you know, when I seen some people come home and say, oh, he's pro surfer. Oh, good boy. You know, good pro surf, surf the wave, surf the waves. Like I would be told that. But whenever I said, oh, I got, I got like an A on my, like, I don't know, physics test or like cliff, you make me so proud or you make everyone so proud, like hugs. And just like that feeling of like, it was a reassurance to people that I really cared about that we're not going to be lost, you know, in this. Was, was there anyone specifically who you can think of that had that influence on it, you? It was, it was all, it was all my family, I would say. And even non-family is like, you know, everybody's family at home. Yeah. And just, it was like, you know, to me, like I, I get, you know, feels on it now, just thinking like it was either at my auntie's house, of course your mom and your dad, you know, you, you get those feelings from them. And, but I remember, you know, just going to my, my auntie's house, you know, in Kailua on the east side of Oahu. And, and I told her like, oh yeah, like I'm having a hard time. I don't know if I'm going to fail. And then I come back, like I got like a B in the super hard test. And she just would like hug me like Cliff, I'm so proud of you. Like, and like, man, to ha- like, I don't even see my auntie that often, you know, but for her just to be like, I'm so proud of you. And like, you know, I mean, and, and I have auntie in San Francisco and my cousins and like, they used to like pick on me when I was small, but now they're just like Cliff, like, can you talk to our kids about how you're going to college? Like, like that type of, I don't know. Like I, I felt like a responsibility, like a, do I really just want to go and chase waves for myself? Yeah. You know, and, and that, that's always been a hard thing for me, you know, cause I feel like to be, to be complete and balanced, of course, I got to put something back into myself and, and surfing definitely is that expression. It's cultural. It helps me to really express myself in that. But it's like, you know, like, like things that you're doing, like you, you can just be going on surf trips and just surfing, but you being able to give a voice to the people and things like like that to me, like, uh, I just get inspired by that. And I didn't like, I mean, come on, like this didn't really happen before. So it was like, or maybe it did and I wasn't aware of it. And it's just, is like, once I started seeing it's possible, you know, a lot of stuff from like what you're doing, what Sai is doing, you know, Sutton, like these, this is a, a change. I think it's kind of a, a good change that is yeah. really, really inspirational. And, and I hope that I can, in a small way, be a part of that conversation where, you know, if a kid wants to, be able to whatever put a sticker on their board or just travel the world they can do it even after they spend six years in school like it's possible you know and i think that's just starting to emerge or not go to school and be willing to you know invest in the knowledge or the getting that information that we were talking about yeah well it's never been easier like the the world is at your fingertips and if you have a little bit of motivation um i've you know kind of used the analogy of being able to sit at certain tables um, throughout your life, you can you can ascend and you can learn if you choose to do that. And if you choose to just put in you know, an hour a day to learning a subject, you can very quickly become an expert in that subject. And I think that it allows you to to like be your biggest self. Really, like that's kind of what I'm gleaning from what you're talking about. Is like you could just be surfing, doing your thing. That's that's all cool. But in retrospect, when you're 80 years old, looking back you know, sitting on a rocking chair on a porch. Um, and you ask yourself, was I my biggest, was I my best self? You know, you don't want to have regret around that. And, and, and I just want to say like, you know, don't get me wrong. Like there are people that have really 
focus primarily on being the number one best that are inspirational and they do change the world you know and and that's just not me though yeah you know like there are people that in the surf world that are incredible athletes incredibly inspirational competitors and have done so many for i think a lot of people and yeah but to me I, i don't i don't feel that i could that's what it was growing up i didn't feel i was that person that i didn't feel like by just you know doing an air or getting a barrel or catching a wave i didn't feel that would inspire people and but i i kind of that's how i express myself yeah so if i can express myself in that sense and then also help people i don't i mean i don't know maybe i'm helping myself this is all that one of those things or are we are we spinning our own bullshit you know at the end of the day and i I don't know but i I think it's it's one of those things where it is definitely a duality where it's trying to balance surfing with school and also sharing stories through photography and film. Yeah. These are things that growing up, I was told I would have to choose every single step along the way is this is not possible to do. And I had to just have enough self belief that like, ah, maybe I'm just like tricking myself, but I had to hold on to this, like just confidence that there will be a day where I know I can use this to contribute, be a positive contributor to society on not on a on whatever level I want to choose. Can you like how would you move through those moments, like the moments of being unsure of yourself? Oh yeah, those are. I mean, it definitely gets dark, and it's and it, it ain't any worse than some real issues in life. This is all kind of like self reflection and things like that. Sure, but whatever. It's personal. It's real. Yeah, it's like, it, we all have our shit going it, on. Yeah, and, you know, and yeah, bro, and I I try to. You know, I try to, it's cool because when one thing's not really working out, I can really use the other thing to build me up. You know? What do you so mean by like, that? So say like, you know, I was having, I was having trouble with this one class that I, I really need to pass because of some requirement from this one institution. And if I don't get an A on this and it was quantum mechanics, uh, I, would, <laughs> I, was, I would not be able to maintain my eligibility in graduate school. So these are things that you need, you know, calc three and linear algebra and things. I haven't taken math in like so long. And then I got put in this course and I just was stressing and I I was struggling, but to be able to get out in the ocean, you know, to be able to know like, okay, like I I can be a part of this and also to share stories along that time. It it helped me to know that like, it'll be okay at the end. Yeah. it, It will be okay. And then, you know, things with like, you know, surfing, like you, you know, I believe like, okay, this is, you know, we're working a lot with trying to find alternative materials for surfboard construction. And, you know, sometimes an individual say, or our company or whatever, be like, no, we don't want to do that because it's going to hit our price point or the bottom line. And I'm just like, who can we get to subsidize this? Because we need to move away from this technology. You know, what can we do? Like, I'm not making any money off of this. I just want, you know, us to move forward. And I just get so stressed. Like, am I like just some weird hippie right now that is trying to push my like ideas on people and I can go back to the science and be like, okay, what's feasible? What's the technology where it's at? What can we get from what places? And then I can go back. What are you working on right now with board material? Um, so right now what I'm writing is basically just, um, recycled foam EPS. What's recycled? What does recycled mean? So from old, expanded polystyrene EPS uh, foam like broken boards broken boards um, what is it plate lunch cartons or styrofoam coolers things like that and then it's remolded together remolded and pressed beaded and it's it's a fraction of that original 
foam gets put into new foam, but it's kind of moving away from the actual production of you know virgin foams and and where does virgin foam come from oh so these are all blown in different places it's a it's a chemical process where you're mixing a bunch of chemicals to to create the actual the foam either polyurethane or polystyrene but that's what most of our boards are made out of yeah eps you know polyurethane poly they call them eps that's basically what's happening and then you know there's um i'm I'm fortunate to be able to talk with people from the university of california arctic foam about algae based uh, petroleum or algae based oils instead of fossil fuels for the the creation of these foams things like that you know talking with guys like at entropy you know prolinks materials where people are using resins from you know pine you know these are all things that we're moving away from but you know we can go full like i don't know compost surfboards and things like that but it's so expensive you know, so I really appreciate when there's companies that are trying to make it accessible from a price point to make someone buy it. You know, what are some of the best companies that you see out there producing uh, more sustainable boards? Yeah, I don't I, I can't really say like what the best are right now, but definitely the, the things that I'm I'm working with a lot now because I feel it's 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 a really positive step forward would be, you know, entropy resins. You know, they that's a good resin base. Um, so they, do they do resins that can work with both biofoam and regular foam? Yeah, yeah, OK. Yeah. So you can use epoxy resin on poly or on EPS. Um, you can't use um, regular resin on an EPS. Right. Board. So I use Marco. Right now, I'm just writing on a Marco phone. But in reality, I remember doing a project with my friend Robert Patterson from Surf Designs Hawaii in Hilo. And we just took one of my old backyard 7.6s and shaped it into a fish. And that's like pretty eco, you know. It's like if you had to ask me, you know, it's like it's really reducing the amount of new boards. And, and everyone wants performance. Everyone wants a new board. I get that. It's just I, I think... It's, it's not only up to the consumer to just buy green, but it's up to the, the companies to invest in green yeah. and provide green. Yeah, you know, it's, yeah, so it can get the, it's just like solar panels. You invest more in it, they're going to get better. Exactly. And um, they work? They, they work good to me. They yeah. work for you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 I saw them. that video. You're yeah. surfing well. Yeah. I'll, link, I'll link to it under the, the show notes. I've, I've ridden a few of those boards, and they worked fine. Yeah. I, I think it's, um, it comes down to the idea of are we willing to take change? And yeah. some people aren't, but some people are. And when it comes down to it, honestly, if you know, the kids that are eight and nine learning on these types of boards, the, like that's going to be the future. They're gonna, they could surf anything, honestly. They'll yeah. surf, you know, I don't know plastic boards or wooden boards whatever's available there's going to be a kid that's going to be able to do front flips on it in 10 years like, yeah and that's that'll be the new standard so so if someone wanted to get uh one of these these bio boards what would you recommend to be the next steps for them i mean if you have and i'm a huge huge supporter and fan of the local shaper supporting your local shaper like you can you can buy you know the the model the hot model but you can create your own model and it may take a few boards a little more money, but at, at the end of your relationship, you're getting a personalized custom model that is fit to you. You'll get more waves at your local break too. And you'll get more. If waves, you're like yeah. riding a local shape, like you're on the right yeah, board, bro. Yeah. I mean, the, at least in Santa Cruz, dude, if you like paddle out on some pop out board, it cuts your, it cuts your wave credit. count in half. Oh no. Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> But I mean, it, with that, you can just get asked for the materials. Yeah. The materials coming from right now, Entropy um, Resins. Um, and then there's Marco Foam Blanks. Arctic Foam is putting out some cool stuff. And, 
and really just trying to ask your shaper and then the shaper will have will know okay so you it, could ask your shaper and say hey what do you think about doing marco foam on my next board and that yeah. would be a next step and, and then it comes down to now it's on uh you know the the foam blower's ticket to say okay i got to get you that that foam and how much it costs and things like that but outside of that you know um it's a sustainable surf has a, a really good eco board project where they have certified eco boards that are using the the best we can do right now on a mass production scale to to move away from some of the detrimental materials and channel islands is a part of it lost mams a part of it i think they have roberts and they have a lot of pretty big stuff i know you know uh, Fletch at Patagonia, he does a lot of, you know, sustainable practices. They're, I mean, they're, they're there. And I think the only um, warning, I think, to be most upfront is that it will cost a little bit more right now, though. But I really believe that if we just put a little bit more, you know, demand out there, then we can push back on the companies and say, hey, look, people, now, people want this. People want this. And now when the glasser is saying it's going to cost more because it's epoxy, he's only doing epoxies so he's not changing anything nowadays we, we need we can bring that down a little bit what kind of boards uh have you been riding at mavericks um so i was riding um a shape from honestly when i when i ride those waves i just borrow boards yeah <laughs> so i borrowed my my friend's board from san diego andy pierce and he had a board shape from him from maddie rayner who shapes out of the but maddie was the one that helped me to really move down this path of of like more eco-friendly boards or whatever. And it's just because I, I just break boards and it actually kind of dawned on me heavily when I was down at, uh, in Mexico at surfing a, a point down there and I broke my board and I just, uh, I feel bad. I still, every time I think about it, I left it. I left the nose down there. I should have grabbed it, but it's just, it's down there still. And it's just like, what's happening that, you know, probably just sitting there still, it's not getting degraded or anything. So I, I told him, I was like, Maddie, you know, I, I really love to have boards that, we can compost or we can do something. And he just is like, okay, cool. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And that began the journey. Yeah. That began to try to find out how do we get the materials? And it's there. I found out that it's there. We just got to, you know, put, put more into it. So yeah, you know, for, for me, if it costs a little bit more to get a board, that's a personal choice. Yeah. I just choose to do it. Do I still love the feel of a regular standard polyurethane silica based glass and, you know, polyester resin yeah it feels great that's what i learned on yeah. of course it's kind of nostalgic but i don't know i love riding too my friend brandon ahuna he makes alaya at home he makes you know hand planes out of wood koa and you know it's like a million ways to do it so many it's like i can nerd out all day because it's so that yeah. is just a when did you start serving ways. mavericks actually that last winter was my first mav so it you was a couple it, bombs i got lucky i think i went out kind of before everyone else and i was just kind of like hanging out and Man, to be honest, that wave, like, it with with what happened with Sion and, and Mark Fu and stuff, like, those guys are legends and, like, heroes, incredible watermen, talented from Hawaii. And, you know, like, a wave like that to take them, it, it definitely had some, like, there's feels out there, you know. And I was nervous, for sure, getting out there. And once being out there... And, and feeling that, you know, kind of like before everyone came out, the swell was kind of peaking around midday. Tide was a little high. Paddle out. There was only a couple guys out. And What day was it? That was, um, I, I can't remember, but that's when um, Francisco got the, the butt slide. Oh, yeah. Um, the, so yeah, sick. When Francisco yeah, got the butt but slide. Like, uh, Lucas yep. was just packing bombs on the left. Yeah. Um, Nathan got the that crazy behind the peak wipe out. 
Um, I don't, I don't remember the date, but I was up there. I know when you're talking about. It, it was yeah. it was a it was a beautiful day, just beautiful day, and, and a really yeah, it was, it was gorgeous. Like, it was so good, and and man, this is really really cool to be. So out that was there. your first time out there. First time out there, yeah, and it was beautiful. How so would beautiful. you describe the the arena? Oh, when I first got out there, it was it was only a handful of guys. Because Were you solo? So you went out alone. Yeah, and I paddled out and met actually one of the the local guys up there, and like I we, who. We, um, Chris, uh, he's, you'll think he's, of it. He's a real estate agent now, but, um, he's from there. Okay. Gone. Sure. Um, and then just paddled out there and, and then kind of just waiting around. There's only a few guys and the, the soul was kind of, the tide was starting to drop and it was like, it was just getting better with each set, you know? And then each set, it got better and better. And it got to a point where it just was like, okay, I, I, I felt that there was about a 45 minute time of like okay now the waves are really standing up it's people are going to start to see it and suiting up i could see the boats coming i could see everyone starting i was like okay like this is and, and i went out there with if i catch a wave i catch a wave if i don't i don't i'm not like trying to like get all crazy or be the guy yeah. yeah but it just was like so fortunate to to be in an opportunity to be like right in the position and and it was at a point where everyone was just kind of looking around and saying yeah i don't know who's going and then i was like okay I'm, I think I'm going to go guys. And yeah. I like, and I went and got nah, real lucky. And you got a bomb. Got a couple fun ones. Yeah. yeah. So fun. And, and just got to a point where then, then when the cameras came out, then when all the, the attention descended, it just, it was like a different experience. It was banging boards, going over the sets and like ditching boards and like just the, the, the amount of people out there. And, and I don't know, it, it can definitely rattle you. Just it's weird people. how it happens like that, like the ebb and flow of energy out there. It seems like a lot of times everyone goes out at once. And after two or three hours, you get cold, you get stiff, you're yeah. sitting for a really long time out there. And then it seems like a lot of times everyone gets tired at the exact same moment. And then you can go out. And even if there's still a lot of guys in the lineup, like the vibe is just more tired yeah. and you can go out like it's your first round and everyone else is in their ninth round. Yeah. Kyle giving all the secrets that's to my, Mavs. That's my strategy. <laughs> hey, it's just between us though. I won't tell anyone else. Uh, yeah. I feel like that though. With, I mean, with a lot, it's like the, um, it's, it's kind of like the herd mentality. Yeah. You know, and a lot of times you don't know when it's going to get windy. Yeah. So you, people want to go out real quickly and, mm -hmm. and get their waves. Yeah. It's no, fun. It, it's, it's uh, amazing. So, so, you know, so grateful and appreciative to all like the boys out there and the girls. I mean, pff, honestly, the girls out there charge yeah. up there. So shout out to Bianca big time, you know, like uh, stoked. It's really good to see. And, and yeah, in that, in that arena, really from what I seen, and I'm not up there, I told you I surfed it. That was my first time surfing it, but man, everyone was real respectful, honestly. Like yeah. everyone knew who wanted it and who didn't. And I, I really appreciate that. Cause that, that to me is like, that's what surfing is. And, and to me, I'm like, it, I, I've surfed not to like talk bad on any break or whatever, but I surfed snapper one time and it's just like, no joke, 200 people. And I just was so bummed. I was like having these like weird things. Like, is this what you guys turn surfing to down here in this Australia? Is you become. This is what I was like. So I was all young and bummed or whatever. But like it, when getting to, you know, up there in half moon is like the respect and the level of talent and the stoke, uh, it honors, it honors the, the, the the culture the heritage of wave sliding honestly the hawaiian people it's like a uh, privilege you know privilege to be out there cool man um so what's next for you so i'm hopefully finishing up the program this year 
um, finishing up working on this um, this project where we're looking at human environmental interactions. How do people, um, how related are people to things in nature, like a tree or a coral or something based upon the biology, bacteria or chemistry. Um, once I finish up that project, I'm, I'm hoping to, I mean, hopefully get back home and you know, do some more jo wave sliding. Join, yeah, do the wave sliding. Hopefully, and and join that community which I you know I belong to, and hopefully, you know, hopefully all the investment I, I've put into the things I've learned, the stories, the experiences, I, I hope that can that's good enough to join the incredible community that already exists at home. Like, there's amazing people at home doing incredible things, and it, that keeps me inspired to kind of push harder and push further. You know, even when it's unsure, uneasy, it's like, oh, everyone at home are animals. I gotta. I got to step up if they're going to not let me back home. <laughs> right. right on, man. Well, where can people find you? Um, I mean, like... Instagram. Oh, Instagram. Or, I mean, where, where can people get in touch with you? Yeah, Cliff underscore Copono on Instagram or uh, ccopono at gmail.com. Pretty easy. All right, man. Cool. Thanks for taking the time. Uh, thank you so much. Hello. That's our show, ladies and gentlemen. If you loved it, be sure to get in touch with Cliff. My guests always love hearing from you. I will also link to a bunch of Cliff's work on my website, kyle.surf slash podcasts. That's where you can also get in touch with me. You can watch any of my micro documentaries. You can do all kinds of fun stuff on that website. In the meantime, I'm going to leave you with a song by Dry Reef called Checkpoints. And I'll see you next week when I'm back from Burning Man. Up there.